Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What I want is for people to say, oh, that's a risk factor. I didn't know that. So what protective factors will best outweigh that? Because I think of risk and protection in terms of like the scales of justice that, you know, if the risk side is on one side and it gets really heavy, you're going to have to heap more protection and sometimes make the protections more specific in order to zero out the sides. That was Jessica Leahy on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC, ZocDoc.com POTC. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order.
Psychologists Off the Clock is happy to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis, you can really transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And they're really the premier provider in continuing education for clinical professionals. Praxis has both on-demand courses as well as live online courses. They have beginner offerings like Act One from Matt Boone or more advanced offerings like Act Immersion with Steve Hayes. Some of their live online courses include classes in dialectical behavior therapy, superhero therapy, and act with parents. You can get a coupon code for Praxis Continuing Education on our website, offtheclockpsych.com, for some of their live offerings. And we can really attest to the quality of Praxis. We've both participated in it ourselves and have seen its benefits in our clinical work. So visit our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com. Hi, this is Diana here, and I have some upcoming events that you might be interested in. At Inside LA, I'm going to be offering a series of courses on ACT, and really it's for the general public and practitioners that are interested in deepening their practice of ACT in their life. On Sunday, June 27th from 3.30 to 5 p.m., I'm going to be exploring acceptance. And on Sunday, August 29th, I'm going to be exploring values-rich living. So I hope that you can meet me there. And for parents and educators, I have two webinars coming up with Julie Bogart. One is on psychological flexibility in parenting, and the other is on compassion in parenting. You can find all my events at drdianahill.com slash events. I'm here with Yael to introduce today's episode with Jess Leahy, who has been on our podcast before to talk about her first book, The Gift of Failure, and is back today to talk about her new book, The Addiction Inoculation. And addiction is honestly not a topic I know very much about. And what I think is really cool and unique about this book is it's really about how we can bolster our kids' chances. It's really kind of a parenting and addiction book, but how we can protect our kids from developing addiction. So I was so excited to read this book. And when I went into it, I thought, great, Jess is going to tell me all the risk factors to avoid and all the protective factors that I can increase and I'm going to have control. And of course, it didn't really quite turn out that way. And there were a lot more shades of gray. And what I learned is that it's far more complicated than that. And we talk a lot about that in the episode. And so, Yael, I'm curious, you have some thoughts about risk factors and protective factors and, you know, stressors in general. Yeah, well, I writing this book on working parenting, and I have a chapter on stress. And one of the things that we often think about with stress, well, the main thing that we think about with stress is that it's bad, it's harmful, it's toxic, we need to reduce it. And interestingly, research is growing in this arena of stress that suggests that stress can actually be enhancing. And I think it's a little bit like this idea of how do we inoculate from negative outcomes? How do we grow good outcomes? And part of that is not avoiding challenges, not avoiding risks, but actually approaching them skillfully. And part of the skill in approaching it is how we frame it using a mindset of like, you know, I got this or, or how do I build skill or how do I embrace this in a way that bolsters my resilience or allows me to grow and learn. And I was also telling you, too, that on my desktop, I actually have open an article on on resilience, and the title is Whatever Does Not Kill Us. And it's all about this study, uh, and the authors are Mark Seary, Allison Holman, and Roxanne Silver, um, that talks about how exposure to adverse events 
doesn't necessarily mean negative outcomes. In fact, it can really bolster resilience, bolster growth. And I think that in the context of inoculating our kids against addiction, you know, it really is about learning how to approach these risky factors, you know, thoughtfully and and optimistic. Yeah. And the other thing it, it makes me think of is the way stress does release cortisol, and that's what we always hear about. But it also releases oxytocin, right? That tend and befriend hormone that when we're at the height of stress, we have a hormonal response that says, go seek out your people, your community, your tribe, and just talks about community as a protective factor. So it, it is, it's complicated and there's a lot of moving parts, but I, I went through this, this emotional roller coaster of, yes, I'm going to have the answer to shoot. This is really complicated to, yes, there's hope, <laughs> you know, that there really is a lot that we can do around this. Yeah, it's such an important topic. And I, I was fortunate enough to be the one to interview Jess on the gift of failure. And she's such a great person to be talking about these things because she has charm and brilliance and, and just she's so willing to be vulnerable about her own experiences, which I think is so such an important avenue for learning. Absolutely. So everybody enjoy this episode with Jess Leahy. Hey, everybody, it's Jill here, and I am really excited about my guest today. This is someone that I am a big fangirl of. It is Jessica Leahy, who is a co-host of one of my all-time favorite podcasts, Hashtag Am Writing. And she's here today to talk to us about her new book, The Addiction Inoculation. Jess Leahy is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and The New Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Over 20 years, Jess has taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools and spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents in Vermont. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for the Washington Post, New York Times, and The Atlantic. She is a book critic for Airmail and wrote the educational curriculum for Amazon Kids award-winning The Stinky and Dirty Show. She co-hosts the hashtag AmWriting podcast with POTC former guest and best-selling author KJ Delantonia and Serena Bowen from her house in Vermont, where she lives with her husband, two sons, and a lot of dogs. Welcome, Jess. Thank you for being here. A lot of dogs. Thank you. They're all in the room with me. I have three sleeping puppy dogs over near me. It's pretty sweet. It's nice. We have a whole routine. They understand what it means when I sit down and close the soundproof curtains. They know that that's dog nap time because mom's going to be talking on the that black microphone thing on her desk. Yeah, you can probably see the big dog bed in oh, my background, yeah. but they get locked out during recording because they're very loud snorers. So <laughs> yeah, my, the pug actually, the pug snores and our producer for our podcast knows to listen for it. But yeah, she's she's elderly and, you know, pug faced. So yeah, that's going to happen. I love it. No well, I, I follow you on social media, so I get to see your <laughs> dogs a lot and they always make me smile. So congratulations on your new oh, book. This is you. very exciting. It has been. It, yeah, I'm sure you're very busy. Book launch time is always very busy. And we had Jess on the podcast to talk about the gift of failure. And so she's back to talk to us about the addiction inoculation. And I love the way you start this book talking about your own story and you get, you know, pretty vulnerable and personal. So would you mind sharing a little bit of that story with our listeners and talk about how that influenced your desire to write 
this book? Sure. I so oh, let's see where to start. So I um, was raised in a house with an alcoholic parent, and one of my parents was raised in a house with an alcoholic parent, and I did my best to avoid that. You know, I, I really did try very, very hard, and it just as it happens for a lot of people, I'm finding out this is a little more common of a story than I thought it was. It just snuck up on me. It really did, and it had me. I really got pretty bad in my 40s. So in 2013, right when I, we'd had a big auction for the gift of failure because there had been this big um, viral article in January of 2013 that led to the sale of the book. And so this was like my dreams coming true. It was this big, huge deal. And about that time, really the drinking was, it was just getting really bad. And I wasn't realizing I wasn't going to be able to do both things at one time. And at about the same time, and I was just exhausted. I was so exhausted. And about the same time, it, well, in June of 2013, we I went to a birthday party for my mom and got just blotto. I don't remember it, most of it. So I don't know whether that's good or bad. But anyway, I can't don't remember much of it. <laughs> and the next morning, my dad sat on the end of the guest bed and he essentially said, I know what an alcoholic looks like and you are an alcoholic and it's time for you to do something about it. And you're going to screw this up, meaning the book. This is your big shot. You're going to screw it up. And uh, he was absolutely right. And uh, that evening I went to a meeting. So I've been sober since June 7th of 2013. And right when, so I wrote Gift of Failure during that period. That went really well. I was thrilled with that. And I started teaching at the rehab, um, which I, oh my gosh, I loved it so much. And the only reason I'm not still doing it is that they decided to get rid of the adolescent unit to have more room for adults. So I lost my job. I would still be, still be doing it. I just, I love that job so much. Yeah, it sort of stunk. It stunk, stinks for me, stinks for the kids who really do. Some kids really do need inpatient um, treatment. But and actually now in Vermont, if you want inpatient treatment for your kid, there is no place to go. There is no inpatient treatment. There's one place that does dual diagnosis, meaning kids with a mental illness Mm -hmm. and substance abuse. But uh, it's it, there's yeah there's no place. So um, I actually didn't know what I was going to write after Gift of Failure. You know it's hard. Uh, it's great when a book does really well. It's also scary when a book does really well because am I a flash in the pan? You know can I pull this off again? I had actually pitched a bunch of ideas to my agent, and she's so great. She was like, "It's fine. It's not. You know it's no. This really may not be it. Just keep thinking though. You can do it. Keep thinking." And she was also really nice. She said uh, she was very reassuring. She said, look, the first book idea, you know, it comes to you. You've had a long time to think about it. The second book idea feels a little more forced. Like you have to come up with another book idea. And so I was just really patient. I was very busy doing a lot of touring and speaking for gift of failure. So it wasn't like I wasn't working. And finally, just one day I was driving down to Boston to a speaking event and it all landed in my lap, nearly perfectly formed with the title and everything. And I, and I actually pulled off of, of the highway and and texted Serena and KJ and said, (laughs) I have it. And I gave them the title and I told them what it was and they texted back. That's it. That's it. I have goosebumps all over right now. Like what a gift. It was really, really cool because it felt like everything I'd been circling around for the past four years sort of came together in this one book. And as much as I love The Gift of Failure, this is the book that I really felt like I was born to write. In fact, when I approached my agent with the idea, she's like, yeah, it's a great idea, but you have to realize this is a really tough category. Addiction, substance abuse, you know, trying to get parents to buy a book about something they're really scared of Mm -hmm. is tough. So 
you have to be prepared for the fact that your editor may not want this book or, and are you still going to write it even if she doesn't? And I said, I have to write this book. So I'm going to write it even if I self-publish it. So we actually had to create a full, you know, 90, whatever, 80 page proposal um, to go out, to be ready to turn around and go out to other publishers if my editor said no, but thank goodness she was all on board. So, oh good, yeah, it was the process of something falling into your lap is sort of like what we live for. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like, there it is. So cool. Yeah. And to be able to work with a publisher that that you already have had success with is is lovely as well. Well, and she she had there were some problems with the a lot of problems with the first draft of the gift of failure, as I've talked about on our podcast. And she taught me how to write a book. So from my perspective, you know, I owe her so much. I'm so in awe of her. She's, she's almost always right. If not always right. And um, I'm just really grateful to her. She's really helped me develop as a writer. Well, you probably don't know this, but you have helped teach me how to write a book proposal because I had so happy a coach who was learning. She was getting certified to be a book coach through Author Accelerator, who's Mm -hmm. one of your sponsors. And the sample book proposal is your proposal for the addiction inoculation. So I used that as my model for my book proposal and just got my first agent. Like this weekend, I signed the the papers. Yeah. My first two books were with a smaller publisher where you don't need an agent. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to just see, like, can I go this route and what will that be like? So thank you. Well, let's get back to the, I would love to talk about writing all day, but that's more your podcast than my podcast. I want to go back to your story because I think what is particularly interesting about it is that you were practically, I mean, you were basically a teetotaler for a good portion of your life. You were more like the, almost like goody two shoes RA type Mm -hmm. person. And as an adult, it was like a glass of wine here or there, Mm -hmm. learning about wine, getting a really nice bottle of wine. And I think many, many people can relate to that. And that you don't just wake up one day an alcoholic, that it can be this like very sort of slow progression. And then you sort of realize like, oh, I've crossed over from wanting and enjoying to needing and that it's, you know, that it can happen really to anyone. Yeah. But there are certain risk factors that make Mm -hmm. it more likely. And so the book is about kids, like how to help our kids. I mean, it's an inoculation, you know, how can we as parents position our children in the best way possible to reduce their risk factors and increase their protective factors so that they are less likely to develop an addiction to alcohol as they grow into adulthood. Yeah, this is definitely also, this is also a book about you know, having a little bit of comfort with the gray areas, because so much of the advice around substance abuse prevention has been um, overly black and white, I think, to the detriment of understanding why we say some of the things we say, like, you know, there's an entire chapter about peers. And it's always been, you know, everyone has always accepted that peer cohort is a big predictive factor for, you know, substance abuse risk. Like if you hang out with kids who don't use drugs and alcohol, you're more likely to stay, you know, to be a kid who won't use. And if you hang out with kids who do use, then you're going to be more likely to use. And yeah, I guess generally, 
But I was faced with a situation where my kid became friends with someone who was not only using, but was getting kicked out of high school for his using and had a problem. And so what to do with that relationship and how to best support my son and mitigate that risk in the best possible way. And as it turns out, that relationship was not only incredibly instructive to my son, it was one of the big factors that helped um, hit the kid's name is Brian and his name really is Brian. Actually, he felt he, Brian and Georgia are the two young adults in the book whose stories I really focus on in great depth. And both of them felt it was really important for their real names to be used because they've been through wow. such terrible stuff that they wanted to make at least make some use of that experience. So uh, Brian says very freely that realizing on that last day at the school before he was expelled, that when he went running with my son and a bunch of their friends from cross country team, he, that was his moment of clarity where he realized what he was going to lose. And for a young adult to have a moment of clarity is like a huge deal. It's really hard to face that stuff as a young adult, as a teenager, young adult. And so, you know, I, I think, I think in the media and in books, we want a very clear black and white, do this, don't do that. But a lot of substance use prevention is just not that simple. Well, yeah, it's much more complicated. And like you point out with Brian specifically, you know, the research says that kids in contact sports are more likely to use versus mm -hmm. kids in non-contact right. sports. But Brian was a cross country runner. On the other hand, on the other hand, Brian was adopted. Brian was a cross-cultural adoption. Brian was also had some behavioral issues as a child that caused him com to compulsively seek out the approval of others and a sense of identity from others, which really set him up. And then he was put in a couple of environments. He was sent off to wilderness camp as someone who had never used drugs and alcohol, surrounded by kids who had were using drugs and alcohol and were not supposed to be discussing their war stories about drugs and alcohol, and but did that. And so Brian said, oh, okay, I want their approval. I'm going to need war stories too. So there's a whole bunch of reasons that Brian ended up where he did. But again, I, I like the more complicated stories like that. I like the fact that Georgia came from a wealthy family with support. If you're looking from the outside, it looked fairly perfect. But, you know, crack that facade a little bit and you realize there's a kid who's really, really hurting and drinking for very specific reasons. And, you know, as her teacher, it was devastating to see that happen. And it was also, I have to say, a remarkable experience to go back and talk to this person who's now in her 30s. And we reflected on things. She didn't remember a lot of things. So I had to talk to some of her friends in order to get clarification on some of the timelines. And it was just a really healing experience, I think, for both of us, because I've been pained about what I could have done differently as her teacher, and she felt pained about letting us all down. And so anyway, it was a really nice oh. healing experience for everyone. We, and you also talk about how there's a little of this chicken and egg going on yeah. that, you know, there, yes, there's a correlation of, you know, kids who hang out with kids who drink mm -hmm. or use are more likely to do so, mm -hmm. but they also might be drawn to the type of kids who are more likely right. to use rather than the other way around. And I think there were a couple other examples like that too, that it's mm -hmm. not really, I mean, it's just an example of how it right. really is. More there are a lot of causation correlation problems yeah. in this research. You know, we know that, for example, the more family dinners you have together, 
per week, the lower your lifelong risk of substance use disorder. Well, you know, if you're part of a family where you have a lot of support and you're spending a lot of time together, which means you're probably communicating more or, you know, parents who have a very clear and consistent message of no, not until you're, you're 21, those kids have a lower level, much lower level of substance use disorder during their lifetime. But then again, it's the parents who would have the very clear prescriptive, no, not until you're 21, where it'd be less likely there's alcohol in the house. It's probably more likely that they're, you know, it. so there's some causation correlation issues, but I address all of, I mean, I happen to be married to a statistician and I'm now <laughs> the mother of someone who's a, uh, does a ton of statistics because he's a math and, and economics major. And so you know, when I feel like I'm not getting a clear picture on the research, I hand it over to them and I say, what's wrong here? This seems a little too clear cut for me. And then they pick it apart with tweezers. <laughs> so then nice. we talk about all the, we talk about all the gray areas. So I hope I did that in the book because who wants to go read a ton of research and, you know, analyze the P values. And so I, hopefully right. I make it so that, you know, some parents won't have to do that. Well, I mean, I think you absolutely do that. You know, you you write about the research in a way that it makes it easy for a non-researcher to understand what the findings mean and tie that to different, you know, anecdotes, personal stories, et cetera. So I think it's a, it's a really accessible and digestible book. And somehow it is that way with having lots and lots and lots of, of research in there. I mean, you know, you. you definitely get the like, know, and trust factor with okay. you as the author, right? Oh, like, thank you. Um, Cause that's the only way, first of all, I have to say some stuff that's hard to hear. I mean, hearing that divorce and separation is a risk factor, hearing that adoption is a risk factor can get a lot of people's hackles up. Just like some of the stuff I say around gift of failure stuff can be really challenging to hear. So that you have to walk this really careful line of saying, you know, no, look, I heaped a ton of risk on my kids too. Some of it like done on purpose, not to heap the risk on, but because we had to do these things. And, you know, so that's why I'm writing this book. I'm not writing this book because I'm perfect. I'm writing this book because I was in a situation where my kids had, you know, 50 to 60% of the risk appears to be genetic. And so I heaped that on my kids from the get-go. So I don't have time to mess around with this stuff. I've got, you know, kids at higher risk and we moved and all that other stuff. Stuff, I was just so, going to yeah. say, you talked too about moving when your son was right in the middle of high school or was it middle school? It was worse. It was right in between middle school and high school, school and high school. And he had yeah. friends that I trusted. He had the friend's parents. Literally, I would have handed my son over to them and said, I trust you to raise this kid. So yeah, we ripped him away from all that. <laughs> it was, you know, it was good for our family and I'm glad, glad we did. But then again, you know, if I felt, if all I felt about that was guilt and shame, then that's going to become something I don't want to talk about, which is not going to do any of us any good. Right. And this is life. I mean, there are just certain decisions that have to be made that you can't avoid every single risk factor and you can't create every single protective factor, but you know, you do the best you can to have a balance where the protective factors outweigh the risk factors. Can I, can I add one quick thing before you move on? Because so right when I'm in the, like the depths of just despair over the amount of risk I've heaped on my kid because of this one move, which overall was really good for our family and my husband's job and all this other stuff and my job. Um, So I was talking to Dr. Dan Siegel to interview him for the book and I, and I got personal and I talked to him about the move and everything. And he basically said, Mia, you, you could think of that as all risk or 
you could reframe that in your head and hopefully in his as well and realize that one of the one of the things that kids need during adolescence is novelty you know it, it, teenagers have a lower baseline level of dopamine than than little kids and adults and so they often feel bored and that's on purpose because they need to seek out novelty and maybe even a little risk with that novelty in order to learn the lessons they need to learn in order to become competent adults so what is a move but lots of opportunities for novelty and positive risk making new friends exploring new places you know getting a job in a new place all that sort of stuff you can reframe all of that in a very positive way, both for yourself and for your child. And that was like one of those moments where I was like, wow, I hadn't even realized that I was framing everything in such a, I was framing everything in terms of risk as opposed to framing it in terms of opportunity. Right. And it's also opportunity to adapt, you know, adapt to change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where growth comes from. I mean, I sometimes see adults in my practice who kind of went through most of their life really never having anything go wrong. And sometimes that's related to the gift of failure piece where like parents have been hovering around protecting them from failure and pain and everything else. And then, you know, they're, they're kind of a mess because they don't know how to function independently and they've never had to overcome adversity in any way. So, you know, I think there are some other benefits to that. You know, there's a, the term that, my friend, Julie Lithcott Hames, who wrote How to Raise an Adult. She's been on our podcast a couple of times. And, and ours. And, oh, really? And has written the new Just book. a couple weeks ago. Oh, so she talked about Your Turn, her new your book, turn. which is brilliant. Yeah. I love this it's book great. so much. I'm giving it to all the young adults in my life. But the term she uses that makes me giggle every time I think about it is, she, you know, she was a Stanford, a freshman dean at Stanford, and she said she'd have these kids in her office and they didn't know what they wanted. They didn't know how to solve problems. They didn't know how to make decisions. And she refers to them as existentially impotent. I just oh, love yeah, that descriptor <laughs> because it's so exactly right. That's exactly yeah. what these kids were. They just, not only did they not feel like they had any self-efficacy, they didn't, they didn't even get to the point where they could exert any sort of power or agency. They didn't even know how to form an idea about what it was they wanted because they had been told what they were supposed to want. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, let's talk a little bit about what some of these risk factors and protective factors are so that like parents who are listening, you know, there are some that we can't control like Mm -hmm. genetics, of course, but there are plenty you know, that we, that we can, you know, leverage some, like reduce the risk and increase the protective factors. So what, what are some tips there? You don't have to give them all away. People will have to pick up the book because there's a lot in there. I think it's important to say not as much things that you can control. What I would like to think of them, think of this stuff as these risk factors as, as things that we can be aware of and be empowered by. So when I mention risk factors, like I said, there's sometimes this, this sort of like defensiveness, like, oh, but I couldn't have done anything about that. Or, oh, but I had to get out of that marriage. And of course you did. I mean, that's not, you know, what I want is for people to say, oh, that's a risk factor. I didn't know that. So what protective factors will best outweigh that because I think of risk and protection in terms of like the scales of justice that, you know, if if the risk side is on one side and it gets really heavy, you're going to have to heap more protection and sometimes make the protections more specific in order to zero out the sides. 
So starting with genetics, that's about 50 to 60% of the picture. And then on top of genetics, literally the word epigenetics means above the genes. Epigenetics is like the intersection of genetics and environment. It's, you know, things that happen to us in our life can affect the way our genes express themselves, whether or not certain genes turn on. Um, and then, and we can't do much about that either. And, and besides the genetics, isn't even like one thing it's, you know, it's not like we can use CRISPR and like flick out that one gene. It's not how it works. Um, so it's going to take us, if we get there, it's going to take us a while to sort of figure out how to manipulate that. So then we move to the environmental stuff, which is, you know, starting clearly with um, trauma and adverse childhood experiences, you know, depending on your school of thought, you can talk about big T and little t trauma. You can talk about adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And I list all of the CDC sort of version of the ACEs in the book, but then, you know, Nadine Burke Harris, now Surgeon General of California and author of the book, The Deepest Well, has an expanded list of childhood experiences, adverse childhood experiences that can affect your lifelong health. And, you know, adoption is on there and a bunch of other things. Obviously, systemic racism should be on there. There's a whole bunch of lists of things that make kids suffer in a way that it causes trauma. And that trauma then impacts not just from an epigenetic perspective, but from a perspective of raising the stakes, raising the risk of your genes kicking in. Some people refer to this uh, analogy of that your genetics are the bullet in the gun and that trauma is the trigger. So the bullet could sit in that gun forever and not come out, not hurt anybody, but trauma is what pulls, pulls the trigger. And there's a lot of people who are really in that camp. And that's the other thing about this topic. There's lots of camps, you know, some yeah. people talk about, you know, anyway. So, uh, and then on top of that, we have academic failure. We have social ostracism. We have children being aggressive against other children. And uh, we're back in that chicken and egg situation and that self-perpetuating sort of entanglement of risk factors, where if you have a kid who is aggressive towards other kids, they're probably going to be socially ostracized. So which is the, which is happening first. And so that's why early intervention for those issues, you know, obviously undiagnosed learning issues are another risk factor. There are certain risk factors that are, seem to be, have more of an effect um, than others. You know, we know, for example, that sexual abuse is a much, even though it's on the same list as other ACEs, it tends to have an over, it tends to be more harmful in terms of risk than, and it's risk right. factors are dose dependent, uh, ACEs anyway, your risk for substance use disorder gets bigger, the higher your ACE score. Um, and if you want to take the quiz, go to, you know, Google CDC and ACE quiz. You can take that yeah. quiz. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. That part was interesting to me because as I was reading through those lists, and of course we we deal with that and you know, as a psychologist and mental health, you know, I don't know many people who don't have at least one yeah. of those. And you report some of the statistics in there, but you know, I want for people to know that like this is incredibly common, mm -hmm. you know, the, the the rule rather than the exception for mm -hmm. people to have these aces. So, you know, it's not 
a done deal that if you've had an adverse childhood experience, you're doomed to become an addict. But like you're saying, it's like one of many. And the more that there are, the more risk there is. And to be aware, you know, this is something that's going to need attention growing mm-hmm. up. That if a kid like seems fine, you know, we still need to be aware that that the that these experiences put them at risk. And we're just beginning to understand things like intergenerational trauma, you know, yeah. people, for example, whose relatives three gener two, three generations back survived the Holocaust, still seem to have. And then there's the Dutch hunger winter that I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. Certainly systemic racism is, you know, impacts kids not just from a what have you yourself firsthand experienced as a child, but also what your ancestors have, have there's appears to be that level to it as well that is a little bit less um well understood than just the d- very direct what happens to you as a child not only can impact your mental health but your physical health as well i mean whether or not you have a stroke or a heart attack later on in life is is directly related or you know ha- have mental illness that sort of thing hey listeners it's jill here As you know, in addition to being a POTC co-host, I'm also an author. And part of being an author is having a platform or an online presence. So if you like the types of interviews I do and you want to hear more from me on ACT, imposterism, anxiety, and more, I'd love it if you would help me out by signing up for my monthly newsletter and by following me on social media. Just go to jillstoddard.com and scroll to the bottom of any page to sign up for the newsletter and click the social media buttons in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for your support. We've had a number of guests who want to offer you, our listeners, discounted access to some of their fantastic programs. So if you want to learn powerful practices for happiness, calm, and well-being, we have several offerings from Rick Hansen. If you want app-based behavior change, you can check out Judd Brewer's apps for anxiety, eating well, and smoking cessation. Or you can learn how to be a calmer parent with Mindful Mama mentor Hunter Clark Fields. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and visit our offers page, where you will find access to free courses and discount promo codes. Do you know if military kids are more likely, or, you know, have more risk because, you know, you talk about transitions being mm-hmm. a big risk factor. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these are kids who are moving every two to three years. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, I live in San Diego, so we have a huge right. military population. And I'm thinking, you know, does this mean they're more at risk or are, you know, the, do they just habituate? Like this is what they've done their whole life and this is normal, you know, quote unquote normal for them. So maybe it's not. I wasn't sure if you came across any research on that. Here's the problem. So many of these risk factors are so difficult to disentangle from each other. So for example, I wrote a piece a while ago, a long time ago for The Atlantic about what kids in foster care tend to lose when they move so much. So kids in foster care tend to move three to four times um, during their lifetime, at least. And they lose six months of academic progress with each move. So that's why we now understand that educational stability is one of the most important things we can give foster kids, because at least if that's there, then hopefully there's some anyway. Um, but so so if you think about you know military kids, well, they may not be dealing with some of the physical danger that can go along with being moved from foster home to foster home or group home, but they are dealing with that educational instability and, you know, where one begins and one ends, like, are are those equivalent? Are those not equivalent? You know, it's really difficult to tell. And, And when you look at the research, 
it's it's just hard to extricate one risk factor from another and look to see because yeah. you hardly ever have a kid like a perfect sample group of kids where they have perfectly wonderful home lives and the only similarity between them is the moving every x number of months um you know there's so many wild cards out there in so terms many of confounds your, yeah. right yeah. well and the other thing that just occurred to me with military kids too is socially what they have that another kid who's just moving doesn't have is they right. have a military community. Exactly. You know, so there's a lot of other kids who are going through the same thing and, you know, understand. And, you know, I imagine that that's probably protective yeah. as well. Yeah. That network is really important, especially since having, and you're going, we were just about to go into protective factors. And one of the big protective factors that we know is incredibly important is the support of adults. And specifically, mm-hmm. you know, we, we know that Kids who have been through the ringer as kids, kids who have really high risk factors and number of risk factors, we know that when they have just one adult in their life who supports them, who they can trust, who believes them, which again, especially when we're talking about trauma, especially when we're talking about abuse, having someone believe them. And according to some research that gives them hope. There's this hope piece. There's this wonderful book by Valerie Mahomes about the role of hope in lifting kids out of intergenerational poverty. It turns out when kids have one adult that gives them hope for the future. And the cool thing about hope is that hope is a big piece of self-efficacy. There's a Shane Lopez who uh, died a couple of years ago. He worked with Gallup and he wrote a book called Making Hope Happen. Hope was his wheelhouse and he was a remarkable human being. And he says his definition of hope was knowing or at least being able to conceptualize that your future, your world can be better and that you have the power to make it so. That second part that you have the power to make it so, that's self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is incredibly important for so many different things in your life, including your ability to have... um, not feel helpless, your ability to feel like you have some control over things. Um, it can help with your, your, just your mental health. It can help with all kinds of stuff, including like how well you adhere to doctor's orders when you have to take medicine for something. I mean, there's all kinds of really interesting health outcomes with people who feel like they have self-efficacy. And one of the, one of the things I saw a lot in my rehab classroom, both from kids who had been moved around in the foster care system or had been in group homes or kids who had been really severely overparented or very in a very directive way. Both of them in both those groups of kids, I saw a lot of um, lack of self-efficacy, just that's total like, you know, why bother? Nothing I do can change anything. Um, You know, this one kid in both directions, one kid told me, that, um, you know, everyone, all the men in his family go to prison. So that's what everyone expects is going to happen to him. And why even bother to try to change anything? And then another kid who told me, well, my, you know, my future's all laid out for me. My parents already know what I want to do and they have no interest in hearing what I want to do. And so why bother? So that's, you know, and one kid is coming from a wealthy family with all the, you know, supports and resources he could want. And the other kids got none of that, but what they have in common is a lack of self-efficacy and, and essentially learned helplessness when they looking at their lives as something that they have no, they have no power over whatsoever. Self-efficacy is a protective factor. Absolutely. There's an excerpt on that in the New York Times, actually. The self-efficacy excerpt is in the New York Times. So that's one. 
Um, talking with your kids or, you know, from a very young age, we know all of the best, uh, substance abuse, substance use prevention programs, school-based, uh, substance use prevention programs start early kindergarten, ideally, uh, nursery school, kindergarten, um, there are scripts in the book about how to do that and what to talk about and how to talk about it. Obviously you don't start with, you know, a conversation about crystal meth. Well, yeah. Will you give an example? Because I think that's, you know, to me, that was the thing that jumped out the most is, you really emphasize the importance of having these conversations, mm-hmm. not just early, but often, you know, you don't just have the conversation once and then never talk about it right. again. It's like the sex talks. Yeah. Peggy Ornstein like would talks. say the right. same thing about the sex right. talks. Right. And I think, you know, the question is, okay, but like when, and what do I say and mm-hmm. how do I say it and what's developmentally appropriate? So can you give a couple examples for like a younger kid in yeah. elementary school versus a, you know, middle schooler? Yeah, there's tons of great opportunities. I mean, you're sitting there brushing your teeth together and you say, you know, why do you think that we spit the toothpaste out instead of swallowing it? Why do we wash our hands? Why are we wearing masks right now? Um, grab that that prescription bottle over there. Can you find the letters of mommy's name on that prescription bottle? And why do you think mommy's name is on that prescription bottle? And what happens if you have the same thing that mommy has in terms of why she needs to take the prescription? Can you just take the same pills that I'm taking and why or why not? You know, these are conversations that are really important to have. And obviously the one about the pill bottle leads really beautifully later on into a discussion of why we don't take opiates out of the medicine cabinet. And, you know, the vast majority of parents seem to know that, um, the place that kids get their first prescription opiates, if they're going to use them is out of your medicine cabinet or a friend's medicine cabinet. And yet only 10% of parents talk about the dangers of prescription opiates uh, in the family medicine cabinet. So if we're having these conversations often and early, they can develop along with the kid and the stakes go down. You're not having one of those like, okay, now we're going to have the big talk about drugs. And that's when like, and usually it's like face to face and the kid like crumples up and is like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so horrible. But if you're having these conversations (laughs) all the time, they're just a part of regular conversation. And a lot, a lot of what I do in the book is helping parents find the places where those can happen naturally. Like the story that's in the Washington Post actually about staging a little game show at dinner that happened to be, um, it was the show hot ones, um, about eating hot wings along with, um, questions, the hot wings kind of break the ice, so to speak, and get you off your defensive game a little bit. Plus it was a a show that my kids really, really liked. And so I set up that game along with 10 questions about my kids that we had really carefully prepared so that we could talk. And, you know, and then so the the other thing, this partnership of against uh, to end addiction talks about the fact that having family dinner as often as possible is another great uh, protective factor. I actually see that as emblematic for just to have a regular check in with your kids where mm-hmm. you talk and get beyond, you know, what happened today at school or how was to school today, that kind of thing. I have to say that the wing story was my favorite part of the book. And I thought, <laughs> you know, your kids are older than mine and mine are seven and nine. I'm like, well, they would never eat hot wings, but there's probably a way to do something similar, you know, because it's like, yeah. how is school today? Fine. You know, we try to do like highs and lows, but mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to pull information out of kids sometimes. And yeah. I just thought it was so brilliant and so fun. And like, what a way to get the whole family involved in a fun and positive way. So, I mean, that you've posted about it on social media. I think you said it's in the Washington post. 
Do you know what it's called? If people want to look it up and read it? something like how a game show helped me connect with my kids or something. I'll look it up while we're talking. Um, I'll, and I'll send you the link okay. so you can put it up. And that's the thing is, you know, it was fun. We laughed a ton and the answers to the questions weren't even really about the answers to the questions, which that was fascinating. But, you know, if my kid answered one way and we thought he would say something different, then that was a whole other conversation. It was like a yeah. three hour thing. It was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. I have two hard questions okay. for you. Hit I me. think they're hard. Okay. Um, one is, and you do talk about this a bit in the book. What are your thoughts on parents who let their underage or, or of age, well, more underage high school, say right. kids drink with the attitude of, well, they're going to go out and do mm-hmm. it anyway. And so I would rather have them do it under my roof. And then that way I know they're safe and they're not drinking and driving and I can monitor it. Mm-hmm. What, so what do you think in terms of risk versus protective Okay. So that's not a hard question at all. The research is really, really clear on this. So I've raised my kids two different ways. My 22 year old was given tastes of things, you know, allowed to have his own little glass of wine. Um, In fact, I even admit in the book, I put some wine on his tongue when he was an infant because it was a really nice bottle of wine and I knew it would be his first (laughs) wine. That increases your risk of kids uh, uh, for substance abuse during your kid's lifetime. It just does. So when parents have a permissive attitude, and that includes, you know, having sips, um, having kids over, having the uh, saying kids are just going to do it anyway, which, by the way, is not true. The number of kids who actually drink during adolescence is a lot lower than we would suppose. There's this thing called pluralistic ignorance where we tend to overestimate people's investment in for here for our purposes, alcohol, and not just their investment in alcohol, but how much they drink. We overestimate both of those things. So, you know, I didn't almost didn't even write the college chapter for the book because I'm like, well, why bother college and and alcohol go hand in hand? Mm-hmm. Like only half of kids in college drink, depending on the college yeah, you're talking about. Yeah. Right. So, and but it's shocking because it's our perception. It is our misperception that everyone in college is really invested in drinking. And that's just not true. It's also coming from a place of great privilege because it is the kids who can afford to blow off class, get a second chance, aren't on scholarship and have to keep up their grades to a certain level. You know, first generation kids who go to college are much, much less likely to drink than kids who have this sort of legacy of, you know, well, it's expected we're going to go to college and everyone blah, 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 that kind of thing. So it's a matter of privilege as well. So parents who um, say it's going to happen anyway, I might as well let them have it in my house. The kids, parents who let the kids have sips and parents who have this, this very wrong, by the way, um, who buy into the European myth of in Europe, they have these, you know, the kids drink watered down wine. Like I lived in Italy for a while and there, you know, kids get the watered down wine and they drink from an early age and everyone. And that what's so great about that in is a me using my parent voice that was in my head. What's so great about that is I can teach my kid moderation. That doesn't work. It absolutely 100% doesn't work. What you are doing when you have a permission at permissive attitude around alcohol is you are raising your child's risk for substance use disorder over his lifetime. With each year that a kid doesn't use drugs and alcohol, the risk goes down on a massive amount. So if you're talking about a kid who's 14 and and they have their first drink, then they have almost a 50% risk of having substance use disorder during their lifetime. Here's another causation correlation issue. Mm-hmm. But by the time they get to 18, 
we're down at 10%, which is what it is in the general population, right? About 10% of us have issues with being able to drink. Someone yelled at me on social media. I said, you know, what I often say is, you know, I can't drink. I'm part of the 10%. I just can't drink. And I usually say, you know, like a normal person and someone get really mad at me for saying normal. But what I mean is if it's 90% of the population that is able to drink in moderation, that's what I'm referring to as normal. I can't do that. Once I've had one drink, it's all bets are off. Who the hell knows what's going to happen next. That Europe stat shocked me too. Well, and, and Europe has the the, the World Health Organization, it's very, very clear. Europe has the highest per capita drinking rates in the world. And people come back. This is the other thing. People get really defensive about this when I say it. They say, well, well, but you're talking about Eastern Europe. And that's not true. It's, it's mm-hmm. the, the European Union as a whole. And while it is true that Eastern Europe has traditionally had some of the highest rates, it's actually Eastern Europe that has brought down the levels in the European Union as a whole because they have uh, enacted new policies there, public health policies, and their drinking rates have come down, whereas they have not to the same degree in Western Europe. So if you're buying into this whole, you know, ooh, France, I can, my kid will blah, blah, blah. France has such an issue with the amount of drinking that's going on there that they've had to change their public health guidelines in the past couple of years. So um, that's, it's a myth. And, you know, it's a myth, not only because it doesn't, you can't teach moderation. It doesn't lower your kid's risk. It raises your kid's risk. And what's really weird to me is there are a few things that have pissed people off since I started talking about this book and that one, that not buying into the, the European moderation myth and the, um, I'll just, you know, giving my kids alcohol home, will keep them safe. Um, it, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't. That's sorry. So (laughs) helpful to know and to have the data to support that Mm -hmm. decision, because I think it's something parents struggle with. They're really Mm well-meaning and want to do the the, the best thing. Well, what's been really interesting is because remember I said, I'm raising my two kids differently. So my 17 year old is really pissed off about this, right? Because my older kid got to have sips and got to have a beer here and there. And in fact, just two weeks ago, my husband got, uh, we got takeout. My husband ordered a cocktail takeout and he tasted it. And he said, oh, this is really interesting. I love the flavors. And my son said, can I have a sip? And he was totally testing us because we kind of looked at each other and we said, no, it's got alcohol in it. And he kind of just rolled his eyes, but he was doing <laughs> that like poking of the limits to see if we still really yeah. meant it. And we did. And so that's where we are, but that's all I can ever ask of from my kids. Right. Which is I did the best I could based on the knowledge and information I had. I found out new stuff, found out I was wrong and changed to adopt the new, better information. Right. And that's all I can ever ask from him. So if I did anything else, but model that behavior, then I wouldn't be doing my job as a parent. Totally. Totally. All right. Here's my other hard question. Yeah. Yep. Um, What does a parent answer when a kid says, mommy, have you ever tried drugs? Okay. And the answer is yeah. yes, but you don't, you don't want to tell <laughs> your nine-year-old, for example, what the real answer. I mean, not that this has happened to me, of, mm-hmm. course, of but course, just hypothetically. Well, this is the fun answer for me and also not hard. I mean, it is, this is the hardest question. When I was talking to experts, this was the question that threw most of the experts in a couple of different fields. And in fact, I mentioned that one expert in the book who we decided not to name (laughs) um, really mucked it up. So um, 
in our, so I, this is also where I get to throw my husband under the bus. So my kids are obviously very clear on what I've done. They know that, you know, I was never really into, I tried pop, but I didn't really like it. So it just didn't really do much for me. And so I, and I haven't taken any other drugs. So, you know, and that was mainly out of fear because I, I knew that that was something that in my family, um, whereas, so, and they're very clear on the fact that I just don't drink now. So that's where we are with me. My husband, although he comes from genetics that are very similar to mine, like he was born, you know, with a lot of risk in terms of a genetic predisposition, he doesn't, um, have a problem with drinking alcohol. He can drink. And again, this is where I normally say like, like a normal person, like right. the 90%. Mm-hmm. However, and so we talk about that. He has, he does drink in front of our kids. We're very careful about the messaging around our drinking though. Like I have no problems with adults drinking in front of kids, but the messaging is really important, which is not, you can't, you know, saying things like, you know, oh, this Thanksgiving at grandma's house, all the relatives are going to be there. It's going to be so stressful. I hope there's enough wine. Or um, mm-hmm. I've had such a really hard day at work. And I really just need a glass of wine. Those messages are, I have feelings that are uncomfortable. I am now going to numb them out with some alcohol. Um, and that's that messaging is really dangerous. But where I throw my husband under the bus is we've had very clear conversations with our kids and keeping in mind, of course, my kids are older about the fact that there was uh, the year after my husband graduated from college, he was really adrift and he was disappointed in himself. And he was um, just not doing what he felt he should do. He was bored and he lived in a house with people who grew pot. So in the basement, so he smoked a lot of weed that year. And not only did it do nothing to help his motivation, like, you know, when you're smoking a ton of weed, you're not really in a get up and go kind of place and to get motivated and change, change what's wrong with your life. That's making you smoke so much pot. He also really messed with his short-term memory. His short-term memory was, he admits much better going into that year than coming out of it. And he really needed that short-term memory because after that, he went back to school. Yeah. So, um, so you know, understanding that we don't want to romanticize, we don't want to glamorize, which is the mistake that one of the scientists in the book, the researchers I talked to in the book did, he glamorized it. And his son in his twenties said, dad, I really think you messed up on that one because you just, I think you just wanted us to feel like you had been a cool guy in college and you overdid it a little bit. And so you made those things sound like a lot of fun, like something I should want to do. So there's a, don't romanticize it, but be honest to a degree. You don't have to go into all the nitty gritty details, but honest enough about the pros and the cons of what you did. And, and, you know, for my husband, it helped him cope with a really unhappy year, but it also made it less likely that he was going to be ex- able to extricate himself from that really unhappy year. And actually, when he figured out what his trajectory was going to be to get out of that year, he wasn't smoking pot anymore because he, he realized he really needed to pull himself together and had some prep to do. So we've been very honest with our kids about that. If my husband hypothetically has done any other drugs than that, I don't think we would have slash whatever, talk about that with my kids into details. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, uh, you know, but, um, but there's, uh, there's really good information there for them in that story about that, what we call his lost year. Like, like, so the honesty is kind of like, you may say something like, well, assuming you're not a drug user currently, you know, to say, I, I tried it when I was Mm -hmm. younger Mm -hmm. because I was curious or because other people said it made them feel good or something. Mm -hmm. 
But what I found was it made it hard for me to, you know, do the things that really mattered to me. Mm -hmm. It gets in the way of being able to have good relationships or to do your job, something to that effect. Well, and and actually with my kids, I said something fairly similar about um, smoking weed, which was that it made me feel stupid and I don't like feeling stupid. It made me, you know, one of the things I enjoy is being able to, you know, have exchange barbs and have interesting conversation. And for me, I just didn't like feeling stupid. And so that to me, that was the way I communicated that. But again, that's with teenagers and teenagers. That's the other thing is when you talked it, when, when teenagers, I wrote an article for the New York times where I had talked to the kids in my rehab uh, classroom and said, you know, in your most receptive moment, what might an adult have been able to say to you to get you to think twice about using? And all of them said, and this was of course, assuming that they hadn't developed a dependence, but all of them said, give us the information, be honest about the information because when adults say drugs are bad, well, that makes no sense. Why do so many people use something that's bad? It can't be a hundred percent bad because then no one would use them. They must, they make you feel good, blah, 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 blah. But when a kid understands that, yeah, so an opiate feels good because you have these receptors in your brain that are primed to to receive the the endogenous opioids that we have in our body, um, but a drug short circuits that whole thing. And then suddenly not only is it like flooding those receptors, it makes you realize that you can't ever compete with that. So happiness, like normal human happiness pales in comparison to something that is going to make it so that normal human happiness isn't enough for you anymore. Yeah. And then your brain stops, stops producing those endogenous chemicals. So then you feel even worse than you did right. before you started using Well, it. and yeah. you know, I just wish that Georgia had been able to understand the Georgia that's in the book had been able to mm-hmm. understand that. Yeah. You know, drinking, as I found out, drinking works really great in the short term to, to manage anxiety that's out of control, but over the long term, it exacerbated, exacerbated my anxiety to such a ridiculous degree. And Judith Grisel does a beautiful job in her book, Never Enough, where she talks about, you know, the up and then the the equal and opposite down. And that is actually a little bit bigger, the down. And then you need to drink more to get rid of the higher anxiety and you're in a cycle. Right. Well, and helping kids understand, you know, that's why there's so much information in there about, because we're not talking about adult brains here. I'm talking about the risk to adolescent brains. There are plenty of drugs and alcohol that have, you know, low to moderate risk in an adult brain that are just not low to moderate risk in, a, in an adolescent brain. They're much higher risk because the adolescent brain yeah. is developing, it's changing, it's building and, and the, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on. So if we can just get them to a point at which their brains are done developing, the closer we get them to 18, although I told my kids 21, <laughs> but just between you and me, 18, which is when it gets back down to 10%. If we can, the closer we get them to that sort of holy grail of completed brain development, the better off they're going to be, not just from a brain, you know, brain development perspective, right? but from a risk perspective, the older they are, the lower their risk is. And the the longer we can protect their brain while it develops, the more you know intact their brain will be making it into adulthood. That's so great. I think that is so helpful. This is a perfect spot for us to stop. I know you need <laughs> to go pick up your son, but thank you so much for being here. I think that oh, this is course. just invaluable information and I hope people buy the book. There is so much more just like rich and engaging detail. You know, I learned 
so much and I am jotting things down in the margins and, you know, all the things that I can start doing now. I feel lucky to have this information with a seven and nine-year-old. Well, that's the fun part about this for me is, you know, my job is to look for the books that I want to read because I need to learn more about that thing. And if they don't exist, then I write them. So I learned a ton too. And I I just, I just hope that, you know, it's as helpful to other people as it was for me. Yeah, I think it will be. So thank you so much for being here. So welcome. You're so welcome. Thank you so much. If you want to learn more about Jess, you can find her on her website at jessicalahey.com. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.